I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, there came a synagogue official and bowed down before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and began to follow him. And so did his disciples. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If only I touch his garment, I shall get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. And when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he began to say, Depart, for the girl is not dead, but is asleep. But they were laughing at him. And when the crowd had been put out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And this news went out to all the land. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. And after he had come into the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, Be it done according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See here, let no one know about this. But they went out and spread the news about him in all that land. And as they were going out, behold, a dumb man, demon-possessed, was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the dumb man spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, Nothing like this was ever seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, He cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. And Jesus was going about in all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogue, their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the multitudes, He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, um, we come before You with thanksgiving and praise God for the salvation that You have extended to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's simply by trusting Him, God, that You have forgiven us and restored us to union with Yourself taking away the barrier, God, that separated us and bringing us into that place of oneness with you. Thank you that that work is finished. But Lord, we know that there is still much more that you want to do in our hearts, also by faith in Christ. And we pray that you would minister to us and accomplish in us, God, what you want to do through your word and by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I know um, life for all of us can get pretty um, crazy sometimes with just the whipsaw uh, back and forth um, in terms of emotions as well as in busyness. Yesterday was a beautiful day of um, celebrating the wedding of Gons and Mariah, 
And it was wonderful to be a part of that and to see just their faith in the Lord and their love for each other. It's just a beautiful, wonderful time. Couldn't have been more blessed. And then late last night, um, around 12, 1230, I got the word that at John Newman, who is a part of this fellowship, suddenly passed away at home. And um, Anne had texted a couple hours earlier, but I hadn't seen the text. And so we can be praying for Anne, and we're thankful that John is with the Lord. He's home with Jesus. Um, but what a switch from celebrating a beautiful wedding to hearing of the departure of a dear friend. This morning, the very first thing I saw when I stepped out of my bedroom was our nine-month-old grandson crawling across the floor. What a joy. And then a few minutes later, an hour later, we're in the car heading to church, and we've not gone very far, and Patsy's eating her oatmeal, and she just flicked the whole spoonful of oatmeal across her um, onto me, and I'm covered in milk and oatmeal. It's just back and forth, and you just go, <laughs> then I get to come to church, and it's wonderful being in church, and, and I'm waiting for somebody to throw tomatoes at me or something, I don't know. <laughs> But life is like that, isn't it? Just one extreme to another. You can't prepare for it. Often we don't know what's coming. We're just surprised with these things. The Lord is never taken by surprise. And we can get so easily fatigued and overwhelmed um, by the extremities of life, but the Lord is never overwhelmed. I remember talking to Major Ian Thomas after he'd had a heart attack and he was in a very reflective mood, um, having been very close to death. And, and um, I was sitting with him in the hospital in San Antonio, and he was telling all these war stories that some of them he had never told before. I would wish I had recorded them. And I'll never forget, one of the things he talked about was how war is so extreme. Everything about it is just filled with extremity. He says you can go from being extremely bored to being um, just on an adrenaline rush because you're being shot at. You can go from being extremely tired um, to, you know, ha you know to, to having too much rest. And it's just extreme after extreme. He says that's the thing that characterizes war. And it's good of God when our lives are not characterized by one extreme after another all the time. But God gives us long periods of peace. At least we've had that in most of our lifetimes. But for the Lord Jesus, um, he lived in peace, but the circumstances were anything but peaceful. Times of great joy, times of great sadness, time of people um, warming to his words and at the same time people hating him for those same words. And yet he stayed at such constant peace and his heart not shutting down with everything that he saw and experienced, but his heart remaining open and full. It's pretty amazing. These three miracles that I've just read here are the last of, of a total of nine miracles in chapters 8 and 9, three sets of three. And if there's one thing other than his authority that comes through with these miracles, it would be his compassion. And that is certainly what is being highlighted, I think, with these three that we've just looked at in my, in my reading of the text, the compassion of the Lord. 
And the passage is going to end with an emphasis on his compassion. So the first of the miracles here, it says he was saying these things. As, uh, while he was saying these things, a synagogue official came up, and the man must have been incredibly desperate. He would have been one of the last people in Israel as a synagogue official to go to Jesus for help. But his own heart is just being torn in pieces because of his daughter who was dying when he first went to Jesus, and then he got word while Jesus was with him, according to the Luke um, 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 account of this, that the daughter died. And so Jesus still went with him, but not before another person who's also in great distress, woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Luke says that she'd spent all of her money going to all the doctors she could find, and no one could help her. And she thought, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I could be healed. She's every bit as desperate as the man is whose daughter is on the verge of death and then had died. And now there seems to be this conflict. Um, whose need is greater? What do you do first? And, and Jesus was, was moving, I think, quickly to go to this man and his daughter, only to be stopped by this woman because when she, he was touched, he knew immediately what had happened. And so he stopped and he figured out who it was, engaged with the woman, talked with her. Meanwhile, hope is becoming distant for this dear, loving father with his daughter who has now died. Sometimes life can just get so busy with so many competing demands that we just don't know which way to turn. And I like this passage because it tells me that, again, Jesus was not frustrated. He, he was not at loss of wondering what he should do first. He was just living in that place of trust in his Father as we are called to live in that place of abiding in Christ, a place of rest, and knowing that God is not in a hurry, that he is not conflicted, he is, not, he is not anxious. He is not uncertain. Even though everything around us can be stirring up those things in us, we can be at peace. Jesus addressed the woman it needed to be addressed. And she is healed. She, live, she leaves in, from moving from despair to hope. And now Jesus says, okay, Jairus, let's go to your house. But the girl is dead walks in, and they're flute players, and they're, and they're mourners. Apparently, the Jews were told that even the poorest of people was expected to hire minimum of two flute players and one wailing woman um, whenever there was something like this that happened. And this man must have had many more people than that. Jesus said she's only asleep because that's all death is to, to the Lord, is just sleep. And they laughed at him, he made them leave, and then he raised her up. Amazing. His compassion, his heart stayed true in the midst of these very emotional situations. He felt them deeply, he's a compassionate God, but he wasn't being controlled and ruled. He wasn't out of control by his compassion. When I was in Egypt many years ago for a, a Bible tour, and it was a wonderful trip and a lot of wonderful memories from that time. 
But there was one bad memory that was just seared into my mind. Um, we were in Cairo in our tour bus, 45 people on this bus, and all of a sudden a riot broke out, and it was quite frightening. And we didn't know what was going on, but the bus was being rocked from side to side, and rocks were being thrown at the bus. And our tour guide, an Egyptian man, came running back down the aisle toward us. And I hadn't real, even seen what had happened, but one of the men in the bus had squeezed out through the half window and was throwing money into the streets. And it caused a riot. People were beating on him. Um, trying to um, get him back in the bus because what was happening was just, was, was just terrible. And we were, realized what was going on. We had him by the legs, and we were pulling him as hard as we could, trying to get him back in the bus and almost pulled him in half. And, um, and, and they were able, the bus driver was able to squeeze through this mob of humanity and get us out of there. It was frightening, terrifying. And we were asking this man, what were you thinking? And he said... I saw all these poor people, and my compassion got the better of me. And so he was just throwing money into the streets. And it made a bad situation much, much worse. God is much more compassionate than we will ever be, but he is not out of control. And we see this just deliberate moving through life. He's reasoned, he's... he's He's controlled, he's, he's, not, he's not being ruled by his emotions, though he is feeling everything much more deeply than we would ever think of feeling it. Verse 27, there were two blind men who followed him crying out, saying, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus went into a home, the blind men followed, and how amazing was that? Talk about, the, again, the desperation of these men. They weren't just crying out, Lord, you know, Son of David, have mercy on us. But when Jesus moved away, these blind men followed. How difficult that would have been. Desperate, desperate for Jesus to do something for them. And Jesus healed them. Again, his compassion for these men. And then as they were going, behold, there was a dumb man, demon-possessed, was brought to him. The significance of this is that the man not being able to speak, the Jewish people believed that the only way to cast out a demon was that you had to ask the demon what his name was, and then you would speak using his name and order him to depart. So if a man could not speak, you could not deliver him from his demon. This man couldn't speak, but Jesus is not um, constrained by that. He still has absolute authority, and when they brought the man to him, Jesus healed him. This man doesn't come on his own. The blind men follow him, but this man apparently is unable to come. Interesting contrast here. This father goes, this hemorrhaging woman goes, blind men go, but this demon-possessed man is brought to Jesus. I don't pretend to, to be an expert on these kinds of things. I have friends that are much more knowledgeable on this, one in particular, the torchbearer director that we have in India. He's dealt with the demon-possessed on many occasions. And I can remember asking him one time, why 
do we have to pray for these people to be released? Many times he's prayed for people to be delivered from the demonic um, um, influence that they're under. And his answer was, he says, I don't know, but I believe that their will can be in such bondage that they're not even able to ask for help. And that's where we come in. And we pray on their behalf. And there have been many occasions where he's had to just pray on, on the behalf of someone who was demon-possessed that they would be set free. And they have been set free. That would seem to be the case with this man. He is not able, because of the demonic oppression that he's under, to go to Jesus. And so they bring him to Jesus, and Jesus sets him free. And amazingly, the Pharisees say in verse 34, he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, not only is that blasphemous, in chapter 12, they're going to say this again. He cast out demons by the ruler of the demons, and Jesus says to them, in effect, you are right on the verge of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, a sin that can never be forgiven. Not only is it blasphemous, but it is so hard-hearted. It is in such contrast to the compassion of Christ that, they, that in their hardness of heart, they can't even see the good of what Jesus has done, and they want to attribute it to evil, to Satan. There's no mercy in these men. There's no kindness in them. Proverbs says the compassion of evil men is cruel. And it's almost as though these people are saying better for this man to have been left demon-possessed than to have been set free. Hardness of heart. And that brings us to this last couple of verses here in the chapter. And Jesus was going about in all their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, and seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them. Now, all of this need that was around him, overwhelming, overwhelming, and yet he's not overwhelmed. He's moved by compassion. When I was in seminary, I did a pastoral internship at a church in North Carolina. And um, as the, the pastor that I was working under, he set up a day for me to um, tag along with a hospital chaplain. And it was amazing day, amazing. We started out in the emergency room. And we worked our way up to the top level of the hospital, just went to every different section the hospital had. I saw things I've never seen in my life. In the emergency room, I'll never forget, there was a fellow there who, who had tried to end his life by taking over, overdosing on caffeine. And he was, they, had, they had given him something to, to vomit, and he was just vomiting over a trash can. Young man, 19, 20 years old, and feels that he has nothing to live for. We moved our way on through the hospital, and we came to um, the pediatric intensive care unit of this hospital. And there's a, 
um, uh, the guy that's in charge of inflating the lungs, a respiratory therapist. He, he w took a break, and we're sitting in the back room with him, and he's just chain-smoking a cigarette and doesn't know the Lord. And I'm asking about his job and what he has to do, and he says, I had these little preemie babies, and their lungs are underdeveloped, and they have to get oxygen in their lungs. He says, but I don't know how much oxygen to give them. Not enough, and the lungs won't develop. A little too much, and the lungs will explode. Can you imagine having a job like that? And we just went through the whole hospital seeing one scenario like an, uh, like an, uh, after another like that. And at the end of the day, I'm, all, I'm alone with this chaplain on the, in the elevator, and we're making our way down, and I'm just slumped against the wall, and I go, how do you do this? And he looked at me and said, you know exactly how I do this. It's only by Christ. That man was a compassionate man. Every room he went into, he held hands, he prayed for people, he cried with people. And he was never overcome, though he was filled with compassion. What sustained him was Christ the one he was abiding in. And so abiding in Christ, it's a double-edged sword. You will feel the heart of God as you abide in Christ. And you'll be tempted to be overcome by that very heart that comes from abiding in Christ. But as you continue to abide, you will also know his grace. And you will not be undone and overcome because God sustains. So I did some study on compassion again. It's kind of been, been there for a while now in my heart, in my thoughts. And um, as I told you a year ago when I preached a sermon on compassion, um, part of this is maybe undoubtedly, if you have a, a background in psychology, you're probably wondering how, why, what happened to me as a kid and why I was, how I was raised and you know, and there are sometimes, and we, I joke about it, and my siblings do as well, that we weren't always very kind-hearted and sympathetic and compassionate toward each other. And um, we came by that from my mother. Um, she, if we hurt ourselves, she would say, oh, your foot hurts? Well, let me hit you in the head. Then you won't think about your foot. That was my mom. Um, she would say, we'd say, it really hurts. And she goes, no, it doesn't. Or she would say, well, it'll feel better when it quits hurting. That was my mom. Same one who, when I was in the third grade, hugs me, sends me off to school. Have a good day, Charlie. Happy birthday. And all day long, kids are kicking me and saying, happy birthday, Charlie, kicking me. And I'm going, what is going on? And my mom had put a note on my back that says, today's Charlie's birthday. Kick him. <laughs> she didn't think it would go so far. You know, she thought, she thought I would take it off before I got to school. I know I was there. I didn't know. So compassion and sympathy are, are a theme to me now. I, I want to know about this. And so I looked up Webster, his modern dictionary. How does he define compassion? He says it's sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. 
So you're not going to be compassionate if you have no awareness of what's going on around you. And so that's the modern definition. So I also have an 1828 copy of Webster's. It's a little more full. He says, compassion is a suffering with another. It is painful sympathy. Compassion is a mixed passion compounded of love and sorrow. It hurts. It hurts. There are three Greek words for compassion. I'm not going to tell you because you won't remember them and I can't pronounce them. But the first one that's used most often in Scripture is not the one that's used in this verse. It's the word that is related to the Hebrew word hesed that I've talked many times about. And so that connection, which is hesed, speaks of covenant loyalty. And so in that context, compassion as related to this particular Greek word is the proper response of a covenant relationship. So in other words, if there's anyone you should feel compassion for, it is those people that you are in a covenant relationship with. So who is that for us as Christians? Well, it starts with your spouse because that is the marriage covenant. It would include your family, your children. But it is first and foremost, and I think I'm saying this correctly, the body of Christ. And I'm not saying that they supersede your wife, but there is a sense in which if your family do not know Jesus, it is the covenant of the church, the body of Christ, that you have great obligation to. That is not to ignore your family. But there are times when the body of Christ may take place over your family. It's a difficult thing to work through, I understand. It's because of this covenant relationship that Israel was in that they could cry out, God, have mercy on us, as these two blind men are doing. See, these blind men in saying, Son of David, have mercy upon us, they're recognizing that Jesus is the king, the God king, the God man. And they recognize that if he is who we think he is, that he is the king that God has sent, the Messiah, then he is in a covenant obligation to us. And that's why they cried out, have mercy upon us, because if you're in a covenant relationship with someone, you owe them mercy before anyone else. The word that's used in this particular verse, verse 36, he felt compassion for them, is a word that's more in line with what Webster is talking about, a painful sympathy a coupling together, a compounding of love and sorrow. It means heart, gut-wrenching emotion. Literally, his heart contracted convulsively in seeing the crying need around him. How do you live that way? Deep emotion. Deep emotion. There were things that Jesus saw, I know, that brought great joy to him. 
But there had to be so much more that brought great sorrow to him. And his heart never shut down. Praise God. His heart was never overwhelmed. He never withdrew. He continued to step in to what he saw. Amazing. It's a third word that is somewhere between these two. Some of the verses that we find in the Bible that reflect these three on the first that deals with covenant faithful type of compassion. Jesus says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to come. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This gut-wrenching type of, of emotion here in 936, but also in Matthew in chapter 14, 15, 18, and 20, same type of statements. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt this gut-wrenching compassion for them, and he healed their sick. In chapter 15, he says, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. In chapter 18, and the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. And then in chapter 20, moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight. In the last use of the Greek word for compassion, in Romans 9, it says, Moses says, I 